if I'm being completely honest, it's because I see this as probably one of the hardest things for parents to really do, to not be thrashed about in the parent-child relationship, to allow our child to go through ups and downs and emotions and turbulence and fears and all the other things and not have it have us just be chasing it and being a victim to it and so I guess there's just way this way that I see this as such a high aspiration for parents and I think it is what our children need from us most of human history, people have parented the way their parents and grandparents did with culture providing the cues. We call this Parenting 1.0. For various reasons, parents began to question these approaches and we started turning more and more to so-called experts to learn to parent. This was the beginning of Parenting 2.0. This allowed for some real advances but also a lot of confusion as we got further and further away from our natural parenting instincts. Parenting 3.0 is about reclaiming those instincts and integrating them with our current understanding of child development. It brings together the wisdom of the past with the best scientific and psychological research of the present. Parenting 3.0 isn't a fad or a quick fix. It's a set of principles that allows us to engage with our kids and life from an informed and empowered place. I'm Jai Flicker. And I'm Deb Blum. Welcome Welcome to to Parenting Parenting 3.0. Welcome back, everyone. It's Deb and Jai here, and we're here to talk today about self-actualization and the type of relationship that we want to be creating between us and our children in order to help them to self-actualize. And this is actually part two. The last time, we talked about a little bit more about some specific areas around authenticity and self-actualization, but we also talked about the relationship of how we often show up in more of a role or a mask or in our defenses and how we can move to being more of our authentic selves and how we can be in support of other people, like our children, being their more authentic selves. And today we're going to get into the specific characteristics of this type of relationship, which Carl Rogers calls the helping relationship. And I think I'll just start off by defining what that is. So when he used the term a helping relationship, he he defines that as a relationship in which at least one of the parties has the intent of promoting the growth, development, maturity, improved coping with life of the other. Yep. Yeah. So that obviously, you know, he was a therapist and and cultivating these uh, traits and characteristics and, and, and documenting them in service of training other therapists. But he also very explicitly extended this kind of helping relationship to other people, including parents and educators. Yeah. So um, we started to get into some of the um, characteristics but ran out of time, so we're happy to be back 
to do a round two here. And um, I'm really excited to kind of just dive right in and, and start exploring it and discussing it. Yes. One of the things that I, I think we talked about this last time, but I just want to say that one of the things I really like about Carl Rogers is that he doesn't actually just come out and say it as if he's he knows the 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 firm definitive answer he offers more a series of questions and considerations knowing that we might learn more yeah yeah okay yeah all right so and there are 10 of them and i'll start with the first one great okay great so the first one is can i be in some way which will be perceived by the other person as trustworthy, as dependable, or consistent in some deep sense. And he, I, he highlights the word be because I think that's that's a really important piece of this. It's like a way of being. He says that he used to feel that if he fulfilled all of the outer, the outer conditions of trustworthiness, like keeping appointments and respecting the confidential nature of interviews, etc., and he acted consistently the same during the interview, that this would be fulfilling this condition. So he really came to realize that trustworthy isn't about rigidly consistent behaviors per se, but that it was to be dependably real. And he used the word congruent. He said that this is the way he would like to be. And what he means by that is that whatever feeling or attitude that I'm experiencing would be matched by my awareness of the attitude. So I would be able to notice whatever I'm feeling inside and actually be able to to perhaps even express it, but at least express it and own it to ourselves. And he says that what this, when this is true, then I am a unified or integrated person in the moment and hence, I can be whatever I deeply am. And this is a reality which I find others experience as dependable. Yeah. So that it seems this seems like a pretty good place to start. If we're going to be providing a, a relationship that's helpful for others, we want to have it built on a foundation of trust, of trustworthiness. Yes. So, but it's interesting. He says, experience drove home the fact that to to act consistently acceptant if he was feeling annoyed or skeptical was in the long run certain to be perceived as inconsistent or untrustworthy. So so to, to show up the same seems like it would be a form of consistency, but he realized that that would be an inconsistency or what he calls incongruency if the way he's inwardly feeling and the way he's presenting doesn't really match up. Yeah, and and I think that what I appreciate in that so much is um, how much that's just so true in life. Like if I see a friend of mine and they, I can just feel something's off, but then they come up to me and they smile and they're like acting all happy and I'm thinking, and the first thing I want to say to them is like, what's going on? Yeah. So I think, so there's a way that we think we can put on a happy face and no one's going to notice it. And some people won't. And sometimes you can sort of get away with that. But I think that he's just talking about if you want to maintain that type of trust with somebody that you probably have to have some level of um, congruence with your inner experience and the way that you're actually showing up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, if you, I think... 
kids would call it, or maybe even adults would call it being two-faced, mm, yeah. right? It's like you're pre- presenting one face and hiding another. And, and obviously that's not a good, that's not a good way to build trust. And I have a caveat to this or a, a question about this that I want to discuss because I do think that this is a little bit of a, out of all of the, out of all of these, these, this list, it's the one thing that left me feeling a little bit of a question mark as it relates to the parent-child relationship. So when I think about a therapeutic relationship, like a coach and a client or a therapist and a client, I think when you have two adults, I think it really is a critically important thing to do. In fact, the, the training program I am in, you know, he talks about what you do when you're triggered. So like if I'm the therapist and I'm being, and I'm triggered and my client has, has actually done something that I, that, that has resulted in me being triggered, that it's actually better if I can just pause for one second and say something like, you know, hey, listen, I'm going through something right now. I just had a little reaction to what you said. It has nothing to do with you. This is all my inner experience, but let me just take a moment and breathe and then I'll be right back with you. And I just wanted to make sure that I was being honest with you so that you weren't, you know, so you could know that your interpretation of me might be right. And that's building trust in a person. So what happens is that person then trusts their own experience. Because one of the things that incongruence does is it teaches a person to to question if they are seeing reality correctly. If I look at my friend who looks happy on the outside, but I can feel that something seems like it's wrong, and I say to her, are oh, what's wrong? Are you okay? And she's like, no, everything's totally fine. It does sort of make you wonder, wait, so did I misread that? Or is she not telling me the whole truth? And we start to have like a an erosion of internal, our own, our own perception, but also maybe some trust erosion in that relationship. Then we have the problem though with the parent-child relationship, which gets just a little more complex because I don't know that we really want to just be walking around saying to our kids like every you know, say we're feeling some real negative feelings. Like it's not really appropriate to dump our feelings on them. And I think if we were always just being honest with every up and down of our feelings, that's not really going to be appropriate. And and when you're in a therapeutic relationship, you're usually in like a one hour session. You know? Right, right. So versus day to day. So I'm wondering what, from you, like when you read that, what were your thoughts about that piece of it? Well, I definitely had the same question, um, and I have a couple of thoughts on it. One is, I think, answered by the text, by his own later comment. He says, um, "He says, what I mean is that whatever feeling or attitude I'm experiencing is matched by my awareness of that attitude. And so it kind of goes back to what you were actually saying, Um that the the key first of all is being aware of how i'm actually feeling so that my actions and my presentation are not unconsciously mm-hmm. very incongruent with my inner reality and i think the way that you kind of modeled that sort of transparency in a coaching relationship i think a version of that would be actually pretty healthy for a parent with a child saying, you know, I, um, I just need a minute here cause I'm, I'm, I'm going through something myself, but I'm, I'm, it's nothing to do with you. It's just my own stuff. I think that's a totally healthy way to communicate. And for the, all the reasons you're saying, 
would help the child um, make sense of, in a real way, his or her own perceptions. Yes, and I think the thing that is important in it is that it's not blaming the other person, you know? So it's not like you're making me so upset right now or, you know, so so kids have a tendency to make it about themselves. That's something that kids do. And so when, when we're upset, they will naturally believe that we did something they, they that the child did something wrong and so there's just a, I think it's more just a caution about being careful and one of the things I've heard people talk about parents talk about is that the way that they believe that they teach their child compassion is by talking about their feelings more so the parent talks about their feelings and then they are wanting their child to show compassion for them and that's something that I've seen not work often. You know, it's just too much for children to bear. And so it's okay to, you know, if the, if a spontaneous arising of compassion comes out of a child because you have some tears rolling down your cheek, I think that's wonderful. I think that's great. But to, to be thinking that we're teaching our children how to be empathetic or compassionate by, by expressing our emotions to them kind of on any given moment, I think puts a big burden on our children. So well, the, I'm, I'm realizing there's sort of an irony to this, to that strategy, because <clears throat> um, as we talked about in part one of this discussion, Carl Rogers said that his move was away from trying to fix people or teach them things, teach them lessons and yeah. to um, a shift into relating more deeply, which is what we're trying to kind of articulate here. And, um, the idea of sharing feelings in order to teach compassion, even though it could look like, oh, uh, like more like authenticity, it's really more of a, a, of a strategic lesson teaching, which <clears throat> is exactly the opposite of what he's of, uh, trying to articulate. Right. So, yeah. so, um, the best, it's sort of like this there's a there's a leap of faith I think required to embrace all this, and that is trusting that really deeply relating is going to do what it's sort of what he's saying it will do, yeah. and that we're saying it will do, and and it can feel scary because it's um, leaving so much up to human nature. Yeah. But but that's the thing is that um, that's one of the biggest, I think, problems that we're facing today is that we've lost faith in that process. And so we're trying to manage it and micromanage it. And it's actually super counterproductive. And so we're not we're not. So it's kind of perfect that we're talking about the first principle has to do with trust and being trustworthy. And we have to trust ourselves. We have to trust the process. We have to trust, trust human nature. We have to trust our relationship with our kids. We have to trust our kids. Yeah. There, you know, trust is is what it all begins with, it and does. Um, and then, and that's not about just like, like he says, showing up at the exact time every time and being. It's not just about being reliable in that. It's not about being prompt. It's not about being timely. It's about being 
authentically who you are and being aware of who you are and not putting on a false face. Yeah. So (laughs) I'm only laughing. We're on part one here. I know part one, but it was, it was, it's a really important one. And I think it's a really, it's nuanced. It's nuanced. And this was important to talk about the nuances. And one of the things I think is also important, like if I were a therapist, so when Carl Rogers talks, he's talking about this in the sense of a therapeutic relationship. That's his primary experience that he's sharing from. And you, you wouldn't want your therapist to come in and start crying and just expect you to take care of them. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of the same thing here that, you know, we're creating this environment for our children because we are, this is a helping relationship with the intention of us being the one holding that container for them. And that in that container, we're not going to put our feelings onto our children and expect them to take care of us. And it doesn't mean that we can't say, oh, wow, this feeling is arising in me and I'm here. And also I'm going to be okay. So our child doesn't have to take on that burden of that. And then I have to say one other thing because I always seem like I'm, I I feel like I'm like a person who says, yeah, but (laughs) with children in particular, I do actually think that I would say this about, about trust being prompt and being, and being dependable really does matter. And actually, I even think in a therapeutic relationship, it does matter. It's just not enough. It's not really the thing that is the clincher. So if you do that and you don't do the other stuff, that's not going to be enough. If you do the other stuff without that, I don't know. Maybe it is going to be enough. You know, I'm not even sure. Like, But I know children who have told me, I know kids have come to our house and talked about um, how hard it is that their kids, that, that their parents don't pick them up on time. Yeah. And it's pretty painful for them. And it has definitely eroded trust. Yes. I guess, uh, yes, I totally agree. And I think I'm, 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 I'm glad you're just kind of articulating that because it's, I think what he's really saying there is, you know, some of the expected things of a, of a professional therapist is like that you show up on time and that you, you know, kind of present in a certain way. And he's saying, well, I was doing all that and it wasn't enough. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's what I see too. So, and then the part about the having faith now that I have a almost 16 year old and a 17 and a half year old, I can say I am blown away about how much depending on the relationship as what I think will will help my children to self-actualize, like that process, having faith in that process, I'm blown away on what I'm seeing with my kids. And, and I will speak specifically for my older child to watch him and his ability to relate, relate to other people and to relate to other adults and to be authentic and, you know, I've really done, I've really relied mostly on the relationship, having faith that cultivating a deep relationship would be the pathway. And, and I just want to caveat something. I said deep relationship. It doesn't necessarily mean it comes through deep conversations all the time. You know, it's definitely more than that. There's definitely an element that does not, that goes beyond words. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that makes total sense. Um, yeah, there's, there's a difference between having a deep relationship and having a deep conversation and having a deep relationship consists of more than 
just a, a string of deep conversations. That's right. Some of the just more mundane hangouts are as essential to creating that deep relationship as the deep uh, conversations, maybe even more foundational. Yeah, well, and it's the trust, trust and it's authenticity and it's continuing to show up. And it's, you know, it's actually a lot of the things that we're going to go through the next nine things. Those are the types of things that build that relationship, not just this one thing. So, yeah, well, so so number two here, uh, moving right along, <laughs> not really, um, <laughs> is is um, he, he literally says it's very closely related. And um, and basically he says, um well, he says, can I, the question is, can I be expressive enough as a person that what I'm, that what I am will be communicated unambiguously? He says, I believe that most of my failures to achieve a helping relationship can be traced to unsatisfactory answers to these two, the first and second questions. So I like how he kind of applies this to himself. He says, one way of putting this, which may seem strange, which may seem strange at first is that if I can form a helping relationship to myself, if I can be sensitively aware of and acceptant toward my own feelings, then the likelihood is great that I can form a helping relationship toward another. So again, he's pointing towards himself. And one other thing he says, which we actually talked about in the context of the first uh, question, he says, my words, he says, when I'm experiencing an attitude of annoyance toward another person, but an am unaware of it, this is the awareness part, then my communication contains contradictory messages. My words are giving one message, but I'm also in a subtle ways communicating the annoyance I feel, and this confuses the other person, makes him or her distrustful. Um, and so there's that um, congruency, and, and it's speaking to trust again, and about self-awareness, so very similar um, corollary here. Yeah, and the person who is on the receiving end of that doesn't even necessarily know what's happening. So it's not like the child says, oh no, I don't think I can trust you anymore. (laughs) It's not like that. It's just happening internally. And I think that there's something, I can't remember what practice this is, but you've probably heard this practice before of people like just, maybe it's just as simple as like naming feelings, but there's a way that people have experienced where if they can to themselves name a feeling, the feeling sort of dissipates more quickly. Yeah. And there's a way that it's almost like a, it's like, it goes to congruence. It goes to this sense of congruence. So if I'm feeling annoyed, and I notice all of a sudden that I'm feeling annoyed and I just internally acknowledge I'm feeling kind of annoyed right now. There's a way that it sort of moves through me rather than like resisting the feeling and trying to make it stop being so. Stop. I don't want to feel annoyed right now. Like, no, I just want to be present with my child. And why, why do I feel annoyed? And we're like having an inner argument instead of just acknowledging I do feel annoyed. Because one of the things he said was that when as a parent or a teacher or a therapist or administrator, I fail to listen to what's going on in me, fail because of my own defensiveness to sense my feelings, then this is the kind of failure that seems to result. And that's kind of what I think that's what I sense is that for me, my own personal experience is that when I have the 
when I'm having a feeling and I'm not quite acknowledging it to myself, then that's when I have that that incongruence versus needing to say, I'm annoyed. (laughs) I don't necessarily need to articulate that out loud. I think I'm feeling better about this as we're talking about it more because I'm realizing that there is so much power we have within ourselves to handle this without having to be as expressive verbally. And that when, I think what he's saying is that when we are able to acknowledge it within ourselves, then we actually can be expressive in this way that is not ambiguous. Yes. He really, I want to read one more part of this section because he really goes pretty, he's 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 all in on this, okay? It says, um, it has made... He says, learning all this has made it seem that the most basic learning for anyone who hopes to establish any kind of helping relationship is that it is safe to be transparently real. If in a given relationship I am reasonably congruent, if no feelings relevant to the relationship are hidden either to me or the other person, then I can be almost sure that the relationship will be a helpful one. So I think it's just something good to ponder about, like, you know, how do we show up in our relationships, in all of our relationships? How congruent are we? How transparent? How how much are we trying to um, sort of manicure our image and our presentation versus how much are we being just true to what is yeah yeah and some people have said and this is probably a really deep oversimplification of it but but some people will say things that like depression is the is the like suppression or depression of feelings and that if a per so if a person in a relationship isn't fully showing up isn't actually being their true selves isn't being transparently real then over time that is an erosion of them too so it's not just harming the trust relationship between the person both both people but it's also really harming us as individuals when we don't when we aren't being expressed and showing up in that way yeah i i love that and um I want to maybe finish this this number two here with with one more um, excerpt here because I think he's, you know, very realistic about the challenge of of some of this stuff, even with himself. He says, um, now, um, to be acceptant of what I am in this sense and to permit this to show through to the other person is the most difficult task I know and one I never fully achieve with his clients. But to realize that this is my task has been most rewarding because it has helped me find what has gone wrong with interpersonal relationships which have become snarled Mm -hmm. and to put them on a constructive track again. So it's sort of like a compass point you know it's like am i being congruent here am i being transparent and if not i need to be that's that's what he's basically saying it is meant that if i am to facilitate the personal growth of others in relation to me then i must grow and while this is often painful it is also enriching yeah 
I would say 100% if I were to say my relationship with my family, with everyone, the hardest work and yet the most rewarding work is really showing up more and more fully as myself and to be noticing those places, those sticky points, and then going back to what it is within me that has me not showing up authentically because it, I, I would agree with him that it's not something that I feel like any one of us necessarily fully achieves. I mean, maybe we will. I haven't reached the end of my life, but certainly right now I'm constantly coming up against an edge where I then push a little bit further into that authentic expression again. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense that one of the best ways, if not the best way to help someone self-actualize is to do it ourselves real time more and more, right? We're modeling it and we're also creating space for the other person to do the same. So it, it kind of, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I think some people even call it an invitation. It like offers an invitation to the other person to push their edge in that way too. And and for some people, and maybe not children as much, but there's also a way, well, maybe it is for children too, that it gives permission. When we live in a world where it's really hard to be our most authentic selves, we just, there's actually a quote that I can't remember, but there was a quote about that. <laughs> But anyway, there is a way that we are not really, we're often encouraged to not say the whole truth and that we don't want to upset anyone, we don't want to disappoint people. And so to be given the permission in our homes to be as authentic as possible and to express ourselves and to be self-aware, that's a really amazing thing to offer to our children and to ourselves. I agree. Are we ready to move on to number three? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So the third question is, can I let myself experience positive attitudes toward this other person? Attitudes of warmth, caring, liking, interest, and respect. And he also says it's not easy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, he's talking about, well, uh, he's talking about, getting past the sort of professional distance of traditional therapy. I think that's partly the context that's necessary to make sense of this. Cause it's, I mean, for me, it's, it's often quite easy to feel warmth towards my two year old. I mean, not that I don't ever get frustrated or, or impatient, but, but there's plenty of time. So it's not a, a big challenge there. Um, And whereas he says later on in that same section, I feel quite strongly that one of the important reasons for the professionalization of every field is that it helps keep a distance. In the clinical areas, we develop elaborate elaborate diagnostic formulations, seeing the person as an object. And so um, so this is this is the invitation to see the person not as an uh an object but as a person and to um and to care to care about that person yeah and i think a place where i see this i think you're right that it's sort of easy to love our children maybe when they're younger and to express that warmth But there is a way that I think people can become mechanical in their parenting. And 
forget, you know, just assume their children know that they love them. And maybe they even use the words, I love you. You know, be careful. All the words that we think are the words that are saying, I love you. But maybe we're not showing that warmth and showing that care. And so I think as our children get older, and the more that our children aren't showing it to us, I think that's where this becomes important because like if you're in a therapeutic relationship, it's really not the other person's, it's not the client's responsibility to show care for you. It's it's just not, you know, and really you want to create that relationship, but you're the leader of that. Same with in the parent-child relationship. So what I have noticed happens sometimes is as our children get older, get more strong opinions and start becoming less just openly effusive toward us, we can often close our heart down a little bit. So to me, number three is an invitation to keep our hearts open and to keep remembering that it's our job to keep the warmth in the in the relationship. And then as our kids become teenagers and they maybe even become more challenging or maybe not and you know there's certainly a stereotype that people think teenagers fit into and they often i think almost expect it and there's a way that they're that we i think a lot of times parents want to protect their hearts from that separation and now that i have a child that's you know eight months away from going off to college i would say I have a choice right now. You know, I have a choice. I could start closing my heart down, but I have made a conscious choice that I am not closing my heart down. It will not protect me. It's not going to protect me. You know, all it's going to do is cause me to not have this precious time for eight months. And so, you know, I'm going to deal with the heartache and, and at the end of August. And right now, my arms are wide open. My heart is wide open. And I want warmth every moment of the time that he is still here for eight months. So that's my take on this is just not to close our hearts down yeah yeah well i think another challenging scenario as kids get older and i see this more with the parents of the teens that i work with or some of them at least is that um you know sometimes the teens can be really um harsh and say hurtful things and i think it's hard in those situations for parents not to want to shut down, but finding a way to, I don't know. It's hard. What, what do you think about that? I, I, it's hard to, it's so, it's so much easier um, to say, you know, keep an open heart. I'm thinking for myself here than it is to actually do that in the face of, you know, a, a team really pushing you away. Yeah. Well, I think that, one way is actually keeping this context in mind, which is really remembering that we are in a helping relationship and we are the helper. And that if we really want our children to be able to navigate difficult situations in the future, we want to be a model for that. And that doesn't mean that we tolerate the behaviors. There's, there's also a really important separation here between behavior and ch- and human, the actual person. So I might still set a boundary on what my kids, what I don't want my kids to do, not necessarily in that moment though. So let's just say that I have a situation and it's definitely happened to me where my kids have pushed me away and they're not, they don't want me to be in their room and they're sometimes really rude about it. And so 
I could take it personally. And there have been times when I do. And well, I would say I probably always take it personally a little bit. But whether I actually need to make a big deal out of it in that moment is is uh, dependent, you know, on the situation. But I would say for the most part, I might say something like, ow, like that was that was a lot like, wow. But I also might own something like I'll give you an example that, you know, I often get kicked out of my kids rooms and, um, you know, but I will usually be able to pretty quickly see that I'm the one that was pushing it. I was the, I'm actually responsible for the reaction that I got because they said to me, mom, can you get out of the, my room three times before they finally said, get out, you know, like in a yelling, angry way. And so sometimes I have to be the one that says, hey, listen, you know what? Like I pushed you, I pushed you too far. Like I didn't really notice it. And I was thought I was just being playful and I didn't realize you were really that serious. And I might be the one that's apologizing. And, um, but I also might still say, but I also want you to think about other ways you can be more effective. Like maybe there was a way I wasn't listening, but maybe there was a way you also weren't saying it to me in a way that I was fully hearing. And so there's a way that we were in relationship in it, in dialogue, not in that moment though, not while he was upset. And so I know people have had children be really harsh to them in a way that I haven't experienced. And so I can't really speak exactly for it. But what I can say is that what I have watched people do is that the parents who take it personally and get upset and get angry and get into these power struggles with their kids, those are the ones that it doesn't work in. The ones who actually do look at their job as holding this larger, this larger relationship and knowing that their child is going through something really difficult and really believing the heart of hearts that they wouldn't be treating them that way if they weren't going through something on their own and having real faith in the relationship and taking a long arc of of learning with it those parents they do end up the, the they ride the wave they ride the wave and then there's a point where they come out on the other end and they're really happy that they made it through it so I think there does have to be something about holding this as our responsibility is that we are the helping, we are we are the helper in this yeah, helping relationship. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that's a great answer. Um, I, I think obviously you know there's a spectrum of of sort of intensity or severity of of conflict, but I feel like that's a pretty relatable example and. You know, whether it's like, leave me alone, get out of my room, stop bothering about homework or whatever, that pushback is, I think, a almost universal um, experience. And, um, and you know, the difference between taking it personally, um, temporarily, and then kind of re kind of working with it internally versus taking it personally and then doubling down on that, I think is, is huge so yeah. i think that's i think that's really relevant well so. and the other thing too is if if you do take it personally um therapists have usually a what do they call it a, a supervisor i think a supervisor and uh if they do take something personally that happens in a relationship with the patient or they uh get triggered by a patient they go to their supervisor or to a or to someone else a peer and they get support from them so this is another situation i tell people you know i can't none of us can be guaranteed we'll never take anything personally or that our children won't trigger us i mean oh my god our children trigger us our 
you know, human beings trigger other human beings. The question is, who are you going to navigate that with? And so that's where you go find other adults or therapists or coaches and other support. We don't need to work through our problems necessarily with our children. Then once we've kind of gotten more clarity on it, that might be when we go back to our child and we say, hey, you know what? Like, you know that thing that happened the other day? I realized, wow, I had a really strong reaction and we go through it with them, but we yeah. help them from the context of us being whole, not from the context of us coming one support and triggered. And, <laughs> right, exactly. There was one other thing that I wanted to say, Jai, that... When in the question we said, what are the positive attitudes? And it says attitudes of warmth, caring, liking, interest, and respect. And I just wanted to touch on each one a for one second. When I see, so warmth and caring, we kind of went through. Liking, you know, I think liking is different than loving. And I think we should really be seeking to find things we like in our child. And if we are finding we don't like certain things in our children, find things that we do like too. Because it's like um, you can easily go to the place of I love my child for always. I'll always my lo love my child, but I don't really like him that much. And so trying to keep on finding every day something that you do see in your child that is a, like it can lean you toward a more positive bias toward them. And then um, I want to skip to respect and then talk about interest. Respect is just one of those ones I see a lot of times parents just by virtue of the role of being a parent want to be respected. I actually don't believe that's how children learn respect. I think our children learn respect through being respected. I think the same reason, same way our children learn empathy is by being empathized with. So I think that there are um, really important w things that we can be doing to show respect for our children, whether it be physical boundaries, whether it be respecting their wishes when they ask for something, it, there are ways we can show respect for them or just the way we speak to them. We could speak to them in a respectful tone. And uh, yeah, so, and then the last one is interest. I think we often, again, due to our parent role, we think that like our children should be interested in the things we're interested in or, or you know, or we have de determined to be worthy of being interested in. And so my uh, suggestion is that we go into their world and that we look at what, what's, what are their interests. And if we're not particularly interested, get curious, you know, whether it's video games or whether it's social media, but it also could just be something like a sport you're not interested in or some type of, or bugs or something. And you kind of have no interest in bugs, but you're like, well, you know, but because it's my child, I want to show that interest. And so, yeah, I, I think of um, my sister's husband's father who happens to be a therapist um he's he stands out as the master of being interested in things because they're interesting to others mm. and and it's not just i i, I asked him about it once because i i felt like um for me i would be more trying to show interest as a mm. as a sort of a nice thing to do as opposed to actually getting interested and he's like no you know like if something's interesting to someone else i'm really curious to know why and yeah. learn about what makes it interesting to them and so it's his interest it was his interest for getting to know that other person that mm -hmm. kind of fueled his what could look like interest in something a, a topic that wasn't objectively appealing to him so i think yeah. that's just a helpful insight into that process. 
Cool. I like it. Are we on to number four? We are on to number four. Um, <clears throat> okay, so he's talking about so far being transparent, being warm, being caring, being respectful, interested. But he says, another question, the importance of which I have learned in my own experience is, can I be strong enough as a person to be separate from the other person? Can I be a sturdy respecter of my own feelings, my own needs, as well as his or hers? Can I own and, if need be, express my own feelings as something belonging to me and separate from their feelings? Um, so then, let me. I'm just going to keep reading this because it kind of gets into some really good nuance here, okay? It's really good. He says, am I strong enough in my own separateness that I will not be downcast by his or her depression, frightened by his or her fear, nor engulfed by his or her dependency? Is my inner self hardy enough to realize that I am not destroyed by his or her anger, taken over by his or her need for dependence, nor enslaved by his or her love, but that I exist separate from them with feelings and rights of my own? When I can freely feel the strength of being a separate person, then I find that I can let myself go much more deeply in understanding and accepting him or her because I'm not fearful of losing myself. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good and so needed to be read. You see, I highlighted the all of thing. it because yeah. it was that good. I know. It I was know. that good. It's uh so t- I'm, I'm, I'm going to put into practice what we just talked about. I'm interested to know why that was interesting to you. Hmm. Well, if I'm being completely honest, it's because I see this as probably one of the hardest things for parents to really do to not be thrashed about in the parent-child relationship to allow our child to go through ups and downs and emotions and turbulence and fears and all the other things and not have it have us just be chasing it and being a victim to it. And so I guess there's just way, this way that I see this as such a high aspiration for parents. And I think it is what our children need from us. It feels really aligned with being the alpha. And it feels like it's really the sense of like, the alpha is like this, this sense of a, a strong enough person within ourselves, right? and this sturdy respecter of our own feelings so that we can say, oh, you know, this is where I am right now and I can hold on to myself and you can be over there in yourself and we can still be in relationship, but we aren't this enmeshed, this enmeshed kind of relationship. We're, we're interdependent. Yeah, great. Yeah, and, 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 and there's a way, as I was listening to you talk there, that this really kind of speaks to what we were just talking about, about the other one yeah. where it's like when the um, child is, you know, when the teenager is being rude or whatever age, 
um, child, um, if we, you know, if they're in a bad mood, if we can stay separate and stay grounded in our own sort of more calm, centered adult space, that's going to be super helpful for them and for us. So... Yeah, because that goes back to the Understanding Bad Behaviors episode where we talked about uh, the nervous system and that mm-hmm, they co-regulate mm-hmm. to us. And yeah. so if we yeah, aren't that sturdy self, yeah, then when they are in their maybe un, uh, their dysregulated nervous system and they're feeling reactive and upset, if we aren't being our sturdy self, then they have no one to regulate to to co-regulate to so the more we can get grounded and become like the eye of the storm for them it's actually super supportive for them yeah yeah this is good stuff it's such good (laughs) stuff it blows my mind and i love that it does really uh scaffold (laughs) you know is that right this it's like a scaffolding it builds on it's building on itself here one and speaking of that question number five it is um very closely related it is you want to read that one? Oh yes so am i secure enough within myself to permit them their separateness can i permit them to be what they are honest deceitful infantile or adult despairing or overconfident can i give them the freedom to be or do i feel that they should follow my advice or remain remain somewhat dependent on me, or mold themselves after me. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, um, it's sort of the flip side of the same coin, isn't it? it it's is, like yeah. number five is really about. Well, number four is really about granting ourselves permission to be separate, so that their moods, their feelings, their emotions don't necessarily just automatically dictate how we're going to feel or, or be. And so we're, we're uh, granting ourselves separateness and then we're granting them separateness so that, Hey, they can, how, you know, even if they're being in a way that we don't necessarily like or, or would approve of or want them to be, we go, you know what, that's your, that's, it's a form of respect. Like we were talking about before. It's like, that's you being you. And, um, I'm going to grant you the freedom to be however you're going to be. Yeah. Yeah. It might be that something's trying to work itself out. That's the, I think the the thing, I mean, there's, there's, and it's sometimes can be very hard to tell and maybe, maybe impossible. You know, like we could think, oh, they're just, they're just, um, you know, we talked about this before acting out, but, um, but it's very possible that they're trying to work something out and um, and that and that creating the space for that to be allows for some um, healing to occur. I've seen that happen over and over again. And mm-hmm. and oftentimes I don't real. there are some times where I feel like I really know that it's happening in the moment. But there's so many times where I didn't know that it was happening. And the fact that I kind of leaned on that principle just as a as a practice, as a, as a good habit. Um, I was, and in the end I was so thankful for, cause it was like, um, oh my goodness, if I had, um, sort of intervened or sort of controlled that behavior or commented on that, it would have short circuited that whole process. Yeah. So 
So yeah. granting that freedom to, for the other person, for both people, it's really, it's really, I mean, think about, I just get a sense of like, help, just such healthiness. Yeah. You know, you have two people there, each going through their own thing and give and, and giving both parties the freedom to really just be. And it's like, I mean, a lot's going to go right at that point. Mm, I think so too. One other thing on it, which okay. is that, and I know we have time issues, but I still wanted to say one thing is yeah. that the part about number five is this, that it's, it's permitting their separateness, but it's also seeing them. I just wanted to say it's about seeing them and valuing them because it's not just like, a, oh yes, you can be separate over there and I'm going to be separate over here. There's a relatedness that does need to come into it, which is like a, a respect for their differences, a respect for, and like an actual valuing of like, look at this human being growing into their own unique being. I love this. This is amazing. The awe of that process yeah, yeah. and that journey, Yeah, you know, and the journal, journal of American medical association, did a study and they this was this was probably about maybe 15 years ago and they said that the the best predictor for the long-term well-being and best outcomes for our children on like many many metrics was that they had at least one parent who valued them for who they are mm. like wholeheartedly valued and loved them for who they are not just valued and loved them hmm Valued and loved them for who they are and that they really believed it, that they perceived it to be true. The kid. The child had to perceive it to be true. Yeah. So it couldn't be the parents, because all parents will say that of they do, because we don't go, we yes. do, right? But the sense that the child felt that they were loved and valued for who they are was a huge predictor for great outcomes for our children and their well being. So it just. Well, this so, is a even better oh, segue. See, and I didn't even know which one it was. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> So that does it for part two of our series here. We went so long, we're splitting this into a third episode. And so tune in for um, numbers six through 10 next week. Can't wait. Thanks. Thanks.